Welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences podcast. I'm Amanda Loveday here with Matthew Roberts, an attorney at Nixon Pruitt. Hey, Matthew. Good to see you. Thank you for helping us out today. Yes, happy to be here because we are joined by a colleague of ours, a new Nixon Pruitt attorney and cybersecurity expert, Joe Dickinson. And before we bring Joe on, I just want to say that that going back now over a year, the firm has been recognizing that we really need to focus and enhance our cybersecurity uh, capabilities. We had folks who did it, but we knew this was an issue across all lines of business and across all clients, but particularly with life sciences and healthcare. So we went out and found a national expert in this area, a person who works in all aspects of cybersecurity, uh, you know, on the prevention side and then on the reaction if you've got a breach. And we found Joe and couldn't be happier and so glad that he's with us. That's great, Rob. Excited about this conversation, Joe, because I know that you bring an exciting expertise to Nixon Pruitt. You're in our Raleigh office, and one that I think companies across the healthcare and life sciences space are looking for, for information, for guidance. Uh, So tell us about data governance, privacy, and cybersecurity, and how that relates to healthcare and uh, the industry in general. Sure. Uh, Thanks, Amanda, Matthew, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's huge in that space, right? I think that any business, any industry today, uh, the executives stay up at night because they're worried about data governance, data privacy security. It's even more impactful in healthcare, right? Because with healthcare, they're dealing with the most important, most sensitive, most viable data. And it's really a coordination thing in healthcare and life sciences because it's such a challenge for organizations in in that space to know and document what their risks are, to know and document what the risks are because there are so many sources, right? And so when we think about data governance and information privacy and security in in the healthcare space, it's really so much bigger than than in other industries. Let me ask a follow-up there really quick, Joe, on the, the aspect of misconceptions. Um, I think a lot of folks within this industry may not think that data or cybersecurity is related to their hospital or to their uh, medical office or something within life sciences. What are those misconceptions related to this industry and, and what should these heads of organizations and businesses be thinking in order to not get in a, a position where uh, it would be tough to get out of? So there are a number, I think, of of misconceptions. I think the first one is people, to to the extent that they pay attention to it at all, they confuse privacy and security with confidentiality, right? They think as long as we're careful about keeping information confidential, that's really the extent of it, right? And that's really not the case. Privacy and security go much further than just the concept of confidentiality. I think there's a misconception in the healthcare and life sciences world that once patient information is acquired, that it's open and that can be used for any purpose, right? And so I think there's a failure to recognize that there are many detailed and specific restrictions on the ability to use, access, share patient information. Doesn't mean that those restrictions are insurmountable. It just means that there are legal and regulatory obligations to address those and resolve those. Um, And I think another common misconception is that when information is available for research, that secondary and collateral uses beyond the research are appropriate as well. And that's in many cases, not, not accurate. So the life sciences industry, Joe, a little bit different than healthcare, but related. So 
Uh, life sciences, sometimes you'll have PHI, protected health information, that's specific to a patient. Sometimes you'll have something that's not specific PHI. It's something else. But life sciences companies do get information that needs to be protected. Talk a little bit about the life sciences uh, industry in general, including clinical research, which you've alluded to, and how that, how that is impacted by, or they are impacted by the cybersecurity and privacy uh, requirements. So I think with life, and that's a great point, Matthew, because I think that in the life sciences space, they get, they have access to information from a number of different sources. Right. And sometimes those, that information can look similar as far as the type of information, but often it depends on the source, right? And so I think in the life sciences space, we see a, a, a gap, if you will, in, in knowledge or in, in application in managing the source of information, right? Keeping the, the origination of, of that information as, as part of the, 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 you know, the data that we monitor, right? And so to your point, it's not always patient information that would be covered by HIPAA. Uh, the other issue with life science is often it's not the regulatory requirements that we see, it's the boilerplate, right? So many times we see in life sciences that companies that are required to comply with GDPR or California's Privacy Rights Act or fill in the blank, any number of different acronyms, any number of different privacy and or cybersecurity regulations, they bake into their boilerplate contractual obligations that they pass along to a lot of life sciences companies. And so they inherit through the contract terms those obligations, right. even though the regulations themselves don't necessarily apply. Yeah, contracts matter. Uh, as much as I know people get uh, sort of a, forget the white noise that are boilerplate language, they do matter, particularly in areas where they're shifting the risk on who, who is responsible for the data that's being you know shared or stored or in, in some way used by these life sciences companies. One of the other problems we see with life science is that the paper doesn't necessarily match reality. Right. So a lot of organizations have what we call the checklist approach where they'll check to see if they have the right policies, the right website terms of use, the right contract terms. And once they check that box, acknowledging that they have they've addressed those issues via the paper. Right. And, what, and we, we think expansively when we talk about paper, anything that's written, that's a published statement from the organization. But technology changes business relationships change. Your cloud service provider for your data backups today might not be the same person that uses them next week. And so the representations that you've made in, in, in your paper very often and very frequently get outdated. And so we find risk for life sciences organizations because there's a disconnect between what they say they're doing and what they're actually doing with, with data and information. So going along with that topic of, of the paper, uh, what would you say are the top two issues that leaders in this industry and in healthcare life science organizations and businesses, what should they be focused on? What should be their priorities when it comes to this type of security? So I think number one is what we just talked about, right? The paper doesn't match reality. I think organizations need to spend more time coordinating all the great things that they're doing, because we hear a lot about organizations' privacy and security controls, but they're either not well-documented or they're not well-maintained. And so I think they need to focus on the fact that it needs to be a living, breathing program, not just a checklist. Um, and, and the second part of that is along those checklist lines, senior leadership really needs to be actively involved 
in deciding, implementing, managing, and auditing the privacy and cybersecurity programs, right? Most legal requirements contemplate that senior leadership and, and board boards of uh, directors are actively involved with protecting privacy and security of data. And I think that there's a tendency for leadership to want to hand that off to IT, right? It's not just an IT issue. It's not really just a compliance issue. It's really about asset management and risk management, right? And those things go to the top line and the bottom line. And to the extent we're able to help remind senior leadership that those are two things that they're uh, primarily responsible for, I think that helps them be more successful in that space. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. It needs to be a priority for, for the, the C-suite folks. <clears throat> One of the things that we see in healthcare and life sciences, we all are aware of data, data breaches and things that happen out there. But at times, there are, there's a seemingly a thought that, that this really couldn't happen to me. We've got policies. We've got firewalls. We've got all these things that protect us so that maybe they're not as concerned. Um, why should people be concerned? about cybersecurity and privacy? Number of reasons, right? Um, tremendous risk, right? Organizationally and financially. Um, the bad guys have bigger budgets, right? And so we, we hear that a lot, Matthew, where organizations will think that there's this false sense of security, that it's really not us, that you know nobody that we know, none of our competitors have been on the front page news with respect to a regulatory enforcement action. And that might be true because the, the, the majority of the problems that we see that the businesses need to worry about don't stem from the regulatory enforcement actions. They stem more from the private enforcement component, right? So we see businesses losing revenue, losing customers because they're not able to provide adequate price and security. We see business deals where the value of the deal goes up or down depending on the, the privacy and security controls of the, of the seller, right? And so, you know, we had a case recently where a company was going to get $30 million at closing, but because the acquirer was an international conglomerate and they had GDPR and other obligations and the target company had never addressed any privacy or security controls, all the money came off the table at closing and they didn't get any money in closing. It all became an earnout. And so I think the private enforcement component that businesses don't necessarily read about on the front page news is the primary driver for why they need to pay attention to. to yeah, understanding there are two there are two things to worry about is very important. I think you're right. It's not only the the reputational and the legal duty you have to the people whose data you have. It's the regulatory authorities. So it can be sort of two steps that are both bad if you if you get sideways with a, a cybersecurity issue. Well, and that's exactly right. We often talk about trying to help our clients not be a victim twice, right? Not be a right, victim when right. they're hacked or they have an incident, and then not be a victim the second time when there's a regulatory enforcement action or private litigation or you know, adverse contractual or business relationship consequences. Right. And I think you make a good point, too, about the financial aspect of it. And we say this to our crisis communications clients at NP Strategy all the time. It costs almost more than double if you have to deal with a problem after the problems occurred, then managing the the processes and the um, planning on the front end. Um, and I think it's probably the same uh, if you'd agree within the cybersecurity worlds as well. Absolutely. And that's a, and that's a great point, Amanda, because often when, when we think about those regulatory enforcement uh, actions and the penalties or the settlement fees, they look at what you do 
when something goes wrong. They look at your incident response plan and how you respond to the problem. But when they're trying to determine how much liability you should have, what the appropriate penalty or settlement fee should be, more often, to your point, Amanda, they look at what you did on the front end. They look at how proactive you were in trying, because they know there's no perfect compliance program, but they want to know that you've been reasonable, and that you have a culture, an organizational culture that prioritizes the privacy and security of information. So they look really closely at what you did before the breach or before the incident when they're assessing how reasonable your controls were. Joe, this is a question I've asked you several times and it's simple, but it's still very interesting to answer. Who are these bad actors? Who, who are the people that are spending seemingly every waking hour trying to break into businesses' information and, and get around their firewalls to hack in? Who are these people? That's a great question. And, and if we were in a bigger room, we, we usually start by saying, look to your left, <laughs> look to your right, right? That, that could be a bad guy because traditionally there are hacking organizations. It's cyber criminal organizations. There are state actors. What typically comes to mind are the, the, the Russians and the Chinese, but that's expanding now, right? We're seeing a significant increase in the number of threat actors because of um, the dark web, uh, and things like ransomware as a service, right? People think of cloud service services, right? And, and, and legitimate business opportunities with cloud services. You can go on the dark web and license ransomware. So you license the ransomware, you choose your target, you encrypt their data and you get money out of it. So the amateur hacker, the amateur hacker can, can figure out how to do this himself essentially. Well, they can either figure, there, there, there are tutoring sessions online so they can learn how to do it. Or if they don't want to learn how to do it, they can actually just go license the software and pay the really smart threat actors who have created the ransomware a fee, a license fee, in essence, a percentage of the ransom that they collect. And so the, the number of threat actors is growing. The experience level is going down. Uh, and, and it's amazing because they even have human resources apps on the dark web where they'll talk about their, if you join them as a hacker, they'll talk about your healthcare benefits and your 401k plan. <laughs> Wow. Well, well, Joe, last question. And I, again, I appreciate this conversation because I think it's so incredibly pertinent to what we all deal with today as, as business leaders. We've talked a lot about prepping, being ready, uh, doing what is necessary on the front end. What do you say to someone that has kind of thrown their hands up and said, I don't even know where to start? What are those first few steps that get people prepared for what they need to be prepared for, for potential future um, hacks or cybersecurity issues that they could run into? Fantastic question, right? Because the worst thing that any organization can do is throw their hands up and say, there are too many laws, it's too complex, it's too, it, it's too resource intense, it's too expensive. That's the one thing you don't ever want to do because when you think about all the bad things that can happen, Everybody in the regulatory space expects reasonableness and doing nothing can never be defended as reasonable. So the first thing we tell people is whatever it is you decide to do based on your circumstances, do something, right? But, but I think most importantly is start by assessing what, you, what information you have, your assets, your data, where it is, how it's processed, and what type of information it is, right? Because in the legal community, in, in the regulatory community, small companies don't get a break on the front end. If you're a one-person business or you're IBM, your obligations on the front end to understand what you do with data, 
are the same. Now on the back end, they don't necessarily expect one man, uh, single, single person shops to have the same level of controls and implement the same solutions that IBM does. But on the front end, you need to, to assess what you do with data and, and do what you can to protect it. So that's, I think, number one is all organizations need to do the inventory. They need to do the data map and understand what they're doing with data. The second thing is they need to come up with reasonable policies, procedures, and incident response plans for handling problems as they come up. They don't expect you to be perfect with what you do, but they expect you to have something in place so that you can respond when issues arise. Joe, I want to slip in one more question here because this is something we've talked about offline. Can you talk about some of these high-profile breaches, particularly big retail chains where they've got millions of people's credit card information, how they may have started with the vendors of the company and not the actual company themselves who you'd presume would have a very robust cybersecurity defense system in place? Yeah, so we call that the Fazio Mechanical Services example. When we ask about the Fazio Mechanical Services breach, no one ever raises their hands as having ever heard of that. But when we say that's more commonly known as the target breach, everyone knows what that is, right? But the threat actor got, you know, obtained access to target through Fazio Mechanical Services. That was an HVAC vendor that was hired to monitor and manage the temperatures of the refrigerators in those target stores that had uh, groceries. The bad guys know that. They know that construction companies, that small businesses have far fewer security controls in place, and they don't necessarily want their information. What they want are their credentials to get access to the bigger targets, the banks, the targets, the Pfizer's of the world. And so to your point, Matthew, the smallest targets um, tend to be the ones at the top of the list because they're more easily compromised. And we very rarely see the big breaches that you talk about being caused by security lapses on the part of the company that was the ultimate target. It's more often their, their business partners that were the which, original source of the attack. Which is why healthcare and life sciences companies have to look at their vendors to figure out, all right, are you taking the steps that we are to protect our data that you get access in doing business with us? Exactly. And in the healthcare space, you know, we, business associates, it's a requirement under right. HIPAA, right? They're, they're, right. And I think that those requirements are starting are going to expand in, in, in that the, or, the regulators want to know you're actively managing your vendors and your right. suppliers. Kurt, that's right. Well, Joe, I hate to cut off this conversation because I think it's extremely informational and helpful. Um, and I hope that our listeners um, have found it as um, informational as I know Matthew and I have. So thank you for taking the time Joe, and speaking with us. And for those of you who've tuned in today, uh, please make sure to listen to the entire conversation because I think there are lots of really important points um, from beginning to end. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Taking the Pulse, the Healthcare and Life Sciences podcast. <laughs>